Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is another episode of the Remnant Podcast. This week's episode is brought to you by Schadenfreude. More about that later. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, we I decided that since we're doing um, a couple of reasons why we have our guest today. First, because the president has decided that uh, he can pardon himself and that he has the absolute right to pardon himself. And um, everyone's talking about this stuff. And then there was the masterpiece cake thingamabob thing. That, I, don't, I don't mean to drown you in technical jargon. That well, came there's down. a lot of ways to slice that one. Uh, <laughs> um, and third, because we had uh, Ben Shapiro on the podcast recently, and uh, there was a huge groundswell for more Shapiro on here. And so um, that's why we have Ilya Shapiro here from the Cato Institute. He is... What's your title over there? Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies. Okay. As we know, there are no junior fellows in Washington. That's right. Although there's also that rule, I think Kinsley was the first one to write about it, that the, at least in government, the longer your title, the less important your job, right? So president, it's just one word, but the assistant deputy secretary to the undersecretary for Framfro and Queen Estrella Studies, you know, that's yep. someone who yep. doesn't really matter. It's sort of like on panels in Washington. You can always tell the relative importance of a person by um, looking at the panel and seeing who's furiously going over or writing notes before they speak versus the person who just is like glad handing, walks in and sits down and starts talking. But uh, enough Washington sociology for now. Welcome. Welcome. Good to be on. Uh, Long-time listener. It's part of my uh, daily commute. Well, you know, it's a weekly podcast. I'm not part of my daily commute necessarily, but, uh, you know, long-time listener, first-time uh, guest. Yeah, no, happy, happy to, to have you. And I think you're the, oh, you're the second Cato guy here. Okay. Yeah. Well, Lincecum. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, you know, he's down in North Carolina. Right. Right. You know, spending hours per nacho in preparation. So he's an asterisk. I'm the first person from the Cato mothership to, to be on. That's right. I think that's right. In fact, I think that's how Scott refers to himself as the asterisk. That's his uh, Cape Crusader alter ego. Oh, interesting. Um, is there a costume that comes with that? Uh, you'll have to talk to him about that. So let me let me start off by just asking you a hypothetical. Let's stipulate for the sake of argument that Air Force One is uh, federal territory, right? It's and let's also stipulate it's flying over international waters, and. The president of the United States, any president, it doesn't really matter, is having a conversation with his FBI director on Air Force One. And his FBI director is telling him some stuff about the progress of an investigation that the president doesn't like. So the president reaches into sort of one of those uh, uh, old-timey old doctor medical bags and pulls out a small hatchet and buries it in the FBI director's forehead, killing him. First of all, could the president be charged by the Justice Department with obstruction of justice for doing this? And second of all, could he pardon himself for murder after he did this? So first of all, I'm not sure whether the uh, International Waters Air Force One is relevant to the hypothetical. Well, I, the reason I bring it up is because some of my legal beagle friends say that you know a state prosecutor could not indict a sitting president for a state crime. So if he killed someone in Indiana, the attorney general in Indiana could not supersede the federal government. So I just wanted to clear some of that underbrush away. Now, you may disagree with that premise too, but I just wanted to explain where I was coming from. 
Right. Uh, well, when uh, I get a constitutional question, I have this very weird way of, of answering them. I actually look at the Constitution. Uh, for listeners, uh, Ilya just took out a pocket copy of the Constitution. Although not the not the Shapiro special wedding edition one. We, we have these ones uh, embossed uh, on the back, our names and the date. My wife's a very tolerant woman. Anyway, um, the... What, was it like, was it the first part in English, second part in Klingon? <laughs> no, I'm. Um, I, f- I forget the the the, uh, the delineation of the nerd versus dweeb versus geek and all that. And uh-huh. uh, so I'm I'm like very like bookish, but I'm not sci-fi ish. Okay, all so right. All right. well that, so that no. precludes a huge chunk of the. I, I realize I you know I haven't seen Solo yet. I don't have strong views about Star Wars versus Star Trek or. But you know the difference. Oh, absolutely. Okay. I, I enjoy the movies, and I don't think about them outside the the movie theater. Uh, but anyway, that what what the what the Constitution actually says with regard to the pardon power is that the part the, the president uh, uh, has full discretion uh, to issue pardons regarding federal crimes, uh, not including impeachable offenses. So if someone's about to be impeached, you can't pardon you from away from your impeachment because that's a political judgment. Uh, so okay, so assuming away the the question about whether it's uh, state or federal jurisdiction, assuming this is purely federal uh, jurisdiction, uh, look, uh, there's not much law on this. This is not. Law like Article One of the Constitution, which you know lists all of the powers that Congress has, the coining money, regulating interstate commerce, etc. Here, it's just the executive power broadly and the pardon power, as I've described it, with like no caveats or delineations. And we don't have case law on this. It's not like presidents have tried to pardon themselves or uh, you know come up with freaky scenarios. These things simply don't don't get into court. So my answer is basically the president can use his pardon power on anyone uh, for federal crimes, uh, and that has to include himself. Uh, But it would be effectively a constitutional crisis if he tried to do so because that would be uh, the president sitting in judgment of his own uh, own crime, uh, which uh, defies kind of the the Western, the Anglo-American theory of, of the law of due process and and natural rights and all the rest of it. But the Constitution doesn't limit that. And you know, there's some soundings from Hamilton, for example, uh, at the founding about the what, what, what the proper uses of the pardon power are for. But we've gone so far away from the federal, there only being three federal crimes. I think it's treason, counterfeiting, and piracy. Piracy, that's right. And then I think 10 years later, a, another handful were added. 17 more. I want to get there to the you Crimes go. Act of 1790. Right. There you go. Now, now we have so many that everyone uh, can't tell. So, uh, you know, I think probably the president has the power to pardon himself, whether it's for obstruction of justice or murder, as long as they're federal crimes, simply because there's no constitutional limit on that. But it would be an impeachable offense. Okay, but before you said it would be a constitutional crisis if he did it, right? Um, there are some who would argue that something can't be a constitutional crisis if you're exercising a constitutional power, right? Um, is that crazy? Uh, no. Uh, well, I, I guess it just means what you know. What do we mean by constitutional crisis? You're right. Some people invoke that phrase uh, whenever there's some difficult political moment or gridlock or um, uh, some fraught issue that isn't being resolved uh, or, or something like that. That that's not. Uh, what I mean, and in fact, this might not be a constitutional crisis because uh, I think it would be highly improper for the president to pardon himself, and and it would be an impeachable offense indeed. Uh, but if Congress didn't care uh, and he were, weren't impeached, uh, I guess then you know the system worked. It's not so much a, a constitutional crisis; we'd have a uh, political meta constitutional crisis, yeah. effectively. Yeah, sort of a crisis of legitimacy. Of legitimacy, exactly. Yeah. 
And so you'll hear some people say, and again, let's you don't have to keep bringing out your constitution, but... Other than to throw it at Jack, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that, that part comes later. There are some people who say you, you have to admit wrongdoing to be pardoned. But that strikes me as more of a procedural nicety in the application process. It right? is a procedural nicety. Formally, the only thing you have to do to get pardoned is to accept the pardon. Uh, and you can't reject a pardon? Uh, no, you, there's an affirmative step. It's not simply the president signs your pardon and that's it. There is a, a legal step that you have to accept the pardon. I don't know whether that means... But that's not in the Constitution either. That's another procedural thing, right? <sighs> yeah, I guess so. I guess so. If I guess if the law of the executive branch changed, um, but I think it would probably take... An, anyway, I guess the president would have to issue another executive action or change the guidelines or however that would work. I, haven't, I don't yeah. have specific knowledge about that. But... You know, is it that different uh, for the president to pardon himself for murder than to pardon the hitman that he hired to commit murder? Right. To me, that's not very – that's a distinction effectively without a difference. Right. And I don't think that there's a difference between uh, murder, federal murder. Again, these are all – we're talking – we're stipulating that these are all properly under federal jurisdiction and, and real federal jurisdiction, not you know the Commerce Clause means you can regulate me sipping my soda because the aluminum right. came from wherever. And, right, know. right, right. And 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 so um, what? Yeah, right. So whether it's whether it's for obstruction of justice or for a, uh, uh, a crime, uh, let's put it this way: whether it's for a, a a crime in his personal capacity or a crime uh, of trying to interfere with some public affairs in, in some way, I, I don't think that that makes a that makes a huge difference. Okay, so I'm sure we'll come back to this, but. I've been thinking about this a lot. And by the way, this question, and maybe you were going in this this direction as well, I don't think the pardon question is all that important because we're not going to come to that. And there are so many more interesting questions to get to before we get to either a president in theory or this president specifically getting to the pardon power because we have to deal with can a president be subpoenaed? Can he be forced to testify? Can he invoke the Fifth Amendment to uh, – right, Let's, let's, let's work that through. Can the president be subpoenaed? Can the subpoenaed? president fire the special counsel? All of these questions are far more interesting legally and have a little bit more meat on the bones than the, uh, than the pardon one does. Yeah, but the pardon thing – it's and again, I don't mean to take you out of your <coughs> comfort zone, but it's it I'm, really, I'm really comfortable. It's one of these things. It's 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 like what if Superman fought the Hulk? It's just one of these great, great hypothetical weird things that normally you're a super nerd for bringing up because there's no news peg to it. But we have one, yeah. you know, and so you know, and we have this debate at National Review between me and Matt Frank and and Andy McCarthy about all of this, where Andy is, you know, and I love Andy is emphatic that the president can pardon himself he thinks it's it's he would agree with you it's a stupid conversation and that it's probably misguided and and silly to have to be to drag the public do you think he can't do i think he can't you you, yeah yeah, i think it's insane i think the idea that the president can pardon himself i think that this is one of these things you know bad cases make hard laws or whatever bad law whatever i think this is one of these things and i want to get to where i think we are and the mess that we're in in a second but i think it's one of these things that the founding fathers truly never imagined would th- this fact pattern would emerge. Sure, and so there wasn't really a lot of legal or philosophical uh, heavy lifting done to anticipate and, and, and answer these. A things. lot of this is supposed to be controlled by norms, right? I mean, the, the only the only checks on the president in a lot of ways are at the ballot box or impeachment, right? So th- this is one of my great peeves, and I'll, I want to get back to your nuts and bolts questions in a second, but. We would have a very different constitution if the founders 
weren't imagining George Washington in the job, right? I mean, they were basically creating a government. I mean, yeah, they were anticipating the possibility that one day there'd be a tyrant or that one day there'd be a bad person and all that kind of stuff. But really, they were imagining George Washington being in there. And they were also imagining that Congress would never voluntarily, you know, give up, stop being a jealous guardian of its own powers, right? Imagine if if Hamilton and Jay and Madison, all these guys are sitting around and the guy presiding over the Constitutional Convention is Donald Trump. How different would the Constitution they wrote be? And I think it would be appreciably different in, in, in all sorts of ways. I think the emoluments clause would be... Is that be... another wig joke? <laughs> um, uh, I like wig jokes. Um, I think like the emoluments clause might have been fleshed out a bit even more, you know, and that kind of thing. But um, And we can get to the emoluments clause in a second. Um, and so, no, I think it's it's sort of ludicrous on its face. I'm, I'm basically with Matt Frank where he says, sure, in a sense, you know, the pardon, the president can pardon himself, but a pardon is a is is one of the judicial powers that the president is given, right? Because pardoning is basically a judicial act, sort of like the veto is a legislative power that the president is given, and it's still though the judiciary branch has to recognize the legitimacy of a pardon, and to date it always has because they've all been to one extent or another legitimate. You know, I think this is another one of those circumstances where we have to take them seriously but not literally as Selena Zito coined um – uh, and I recommend her book, The Great Revolt. I thought it's a very uh, – I don't know. Have you read it? I have not read it. Um, it's uh, kind of a nice blend of analysis and, and reporting. But, uh, you know, this is – I think, you know, Trump's tweeting about self-pardoning and all this. But whenever he says these crazy things on Twitter – I mean, it's crazy Twitter. But how many of them actually occur? He's either walked back from the ledge or he's strategically not – not in terms of eight-dimensional chess, but just in terms of saying stuff to then create a firestorm – and then, you know, that's as far as it goes. Yeah, I mean, there, <laughs> the history of Trump trial ballooning stuff and then doing it is pretty solid. I agree he hasn't always done it, but I would bet you that – what do you think the odds that he uh, pardons Blagojevich? Uh, Possible. 50? Sure. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, again, I stipulate he's probably not going to pardon himself. I get that. But you have Rudy Giuliani well, going something. out talking about how he can pardon himself. You have this – 20-page letter talking about how the president can't obstruct himself. It, this is what this is how civics is done. Is you, when the leaders model certain behavior and make certain public arguments, then people like you and me argue about what they're doing and saying. And I think, it, and for, as a if I put on my journalist hat, this is a great news peg to have <laughs> this conversation. No. Yeah, no. Uh, well, I mean, if you want to, I think it's a good jumping off point for talking about the excesses of executive power in, in various ways, either in theory or that's practice. Fine. That's fine. Uh, Ted Cruz had an interesting Twitter thread actually on this question, and he begins it by saying, "You know, I'm not a, uh, um, I'm, I'm not a scholar of uh, the presidential pardon power, and neither am I, by the way. Mm. Uh, I don't think it's really worth spending a lot of time on that. It's uh, a pretty niche. It's a, it's very niche. Legal practice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's probably more of those than than scholars of the of the tonnage clause say, uh -huh. but but still, let's get Scott Lunscombe back in here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Remind me what the tonnage clause says. Yeah, I don't remember myself. It's 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 something about how duties have to be assessed by weight rather than volume, or, or something like that. It's it's one of the obscure powers that Congress has. I, didn't, I did not. Yeah, I, I'm embarrassed to say I did yeah. not. Know that. Um, all right. So, can the president? Um, there was actually a Supreme Court case on it like three or four years ago. Some some aspect of it. But, 
Has there ever been a Third Amendment case? No, but that reminds me of my second favorite Onion article of all time, which is Society for the Preservation of the Third Amendment uh, celebrates another successful year. <laughs> my number one favorite uh, uh, Onion article is, of course, Supreme Court Rules, Supreme Court Rules. <laughs> that's that's the nice summary of Marbury versus Madison, isn't it? Um, so can the president uh, obstruct justice? Uh, yes, but not by firing a special counsel or firing anyone that he's otherwise authorized to fire. He can uh, obstruct justice by suborning perjury or intimidating witnesses. Destroying or evidence. Destroy, sure, absolutely. All that sort of thing. Uh, but if if it's within his power to fire someone, hire someone, uh, change the scope of their investigation or, or what have you, I don't think he can be indicted for doing something that's within his powers. Again, it might present a political problem. It might be an impeachable offense. But um, So if he fired somebody and closed an investigation because he knew the investigation was going to reveal that he had committed some crime, let's stipulate. I sure. don't know that that's the case. That, is, that cannot be construed in a court as obstruction, you say? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. No, that's where a lot of my um, conservative Federal Society type friends come down on this. I was yeah. at a dinner with a bunch of people who you probably know, but I won't out them here. And I asked this question, and it was interesting. There was an overwhelming consensus that you can't be guilty of obstructing justice for firing somebody, but you certainly can be – a president certainly can be guilty of obstructing of justice for basically the reasons that, right. that you gave that. Right. Um, can a president be indicted? I think so. Um, I mean, so there's there's two major – these questions about whether a president can be indicted or whether he can be uh, served subpoenas to force to uh, be deposed. There's two Supreme Court cases that everyone talks about. One of these is United States versus Nixon where the Supreme Court unanimously said that uh, President Nixon had to turn over the, the tapes and he did. Uh, and there's uh, uh, Clinton versus Jones where in a civil suit unrelated to his – presidential duties. Uh, President Clinton was sued for sexual harassment and ultimately uh, the, the court uh, ruled uh, that uh, the, the, the lawsuit could continue. And it was pursuant to that lawsuit that he was ultimately deposed and the Lewinsky scandal happened. I recall. Right. But uh, can the president be forced to testify during an investigation? So it's kind of a in between those two particular cases. Uh, and I think so. I, I think a, a subpoena can be lawful. It just it's not quashed simply because uh, the president uh, doesn't want it uh, to, to to go forward. Now again, he could fire Mueller before he subpoenas or after he subpoenas or, or what have you, but he can't just ignore the subpoena. I think he he could plead the fifth. I think that's something that Giuliani has floated that he could appear and then plead the fifth, meaning saying that's great politics, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Right, so I, I can't. I can't imagine Trump doing that. I can see him saying, "Oh yeah, I'm going to plead the fifth and then starts like yeah, 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 yeah. word salad, which obviates the pleading of the fifth. Because once you start saying anything, right. you've waived your your Fifth Amendment right to not against self incrimination. Yeah. Now, um, the likelihood that Donald Trump, if actually put under oath, goes full, you're damn right. I ordered the code red. I think is just about a hundred percent. I'm not, I'm not saying that he would confess to a crime, but the idea that he would keep his mouth shut and just keep saying, yeah. you know, particularly if they were recording it like they did with the Clinton deposition. Mm. Do you think Clinton v. Jones was rightly decided? I think so. Now, it's it, th there are prudential considerations, meaning you can't uh, intrude on the president's ability to uh, conduct his, his formal affairs. So if it was a, 
uh, a proceeding so massive that we, he would have to devote you know eighty percent of his time to it. I think there's a, a prudential sure. uh, a, a way of saying no. We'll pause this until uh, he continues. Or if it's you know so serious, then again it's a matter for the Senate to judge whether to uh, whether to remove him. Okay, so my latest column, I make this argument. Um, I want to hear what you have to say about it. So, as, as you know better than I, few things, few things, you know, tingle your spider sense or make uh, you more uncomfortable as a sort of conservative constitutionalist or libertarian constitutionalist, a constitutionalist, right? Uh, whether it's original understanding, all that kind of stuff, right? Then classical liberal, by the way, classical liberal. There you go. Um, then the argument that. Then when, when someone begins a sentence saying, the Founding Fathers never imagined X, right, that is, that's when you want to flip the safety on your rifle. Because usually what that means is you're heading into some living constitution thing, right? Whether it's uh, the Founding Fathers never imagined air travel or they never imagined Twitter or whatever, right? And so therefore – I call this prog-splanning. Uh-huh. People who are not originalists trying to explain to originalists what they should be thinking. Right. Because, you know, the Constitution is old, like over 100 years. It's over 100 years. As, yeah. as Recline once yeah. explained. So, and I, so I obviously, I hate that argument, right? And my argument, which I assume is your argument, it's sort of the standard off-the-shelf argument, is that you have constitutional pr- principles that are for the most part timeless. And when they do run into a new circumstance that is a true problem that the Constitution can't deal with within the four corners of the page and legitimate precedent, then you amend the Constitution, right? You don't breathe new meaning into it, right? So I'm generally very suspicious. And there are fewer of these problems than some people might think. Like, oh, air travel. How do we do that? Well, are you traveling between states? That seems like interstate commerce to me. Right, right, right. And that's my point is that most of these things really aren't unimaginable to the founders in the sense that – the 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 issues are usually timeless and uh, and understandable through the prism of the constitution that said the founding fathers never anticipated first of all that congress would lose its interest in aggressive oversight right and and jealously holding on to its powers they never anticipated the administrative state and they also as and you can correct me on this but they never really anticipated that the function of policing and overseeing the executive branch would be moved into the executive branch, right? The Department of Justice is created in, what, 1870, um, the FBI in 1908. And until then, at least my understanding, is that if there was suspicion that the president was committing severe, serious crimes or misdeeds, Congress would investigate it. They would hold hearings. They would subpoena people. They would compel testimony. They'd have investigators, right? Blah, 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 blah. Um, now a lot of that function is being done by the executive branch. So these issues that you say the president may or may not be able to be uh, charged with obstruction or indicted or subpoenaed and all these kinds of things, the founders really – I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't seem to me that the founders anticipated the idea that there would be a lot of subpoenas being generated from within his own branch towards the president himself. And so we're sort of in undiscovered – you know, in 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 unknown country here, but it is a kind of a just a just a, a difference of degree rather than kind of subpoenas being generated for lesser executive branch officials. Explain that. Uh, if the Justice Department is investigating the Commerce Secretary or the you know Deputy Under Assistant uh, Fish and Wildlife Park Ranger, right? It's still part of the same branch. Okay, yeah, but, okay, but uh, let, let's back up. Let's say in 1830, there, who was president in 1830, Jack? 
Jackson. Okay, you, so you saved your job for another day. Jackson. So let's say, no, this is not a crazy supposition, that Jackson was doing something bad. <laughs> um, and we don't mean as a matter of statecraft, but something personally problematic. There was nobody in the executive branch who was going to sleuth that out, right? So it was purely, and let the record show that Ilya is nodding. I've been nodding to a lot of things to, to show how smart I am to know at the tip of my tongue all these fancy dates that John is <laughs> coming up with. But so my question is, how do we know, I mean, like, what would the founders think about this entire debate about whether or not the president's attorney, because that's really what the attorney general was at the beginning, right? Yeah, originally the attorney general was almost uh, closer to White House counsel than the, the current uh, right. model of the attorney general. He was actually pretty close to what Trump wants him to be now, which right. is basically like a personal attorney paid for by the taxpayers. It's what he wants Sessions to be. Um, and so we're in the – it just seems to me I, I, I feel like I'm in this prog-splaining mode. I'm not comfortable with it. But this whole debate about whether or not the president can be guilty of obstruction of justice – in the time of the founders and, and for a while thereafter, the question wouldn't be obstruction of justice. The question would be whether he's using contempt of Congress or defying Congress, right? And so isn't a lot of this debate not actually a constitutional debate, strictly speaking, but sort of a here we've wandered into this strange place and how are we going to figure our way out of it? In the last decade, we've seen a resurgence of a lot of old – of tensions that, that bring forth the – the old checks and balances that have largely been abandoned, whether that's federalism with whole bunches of states suing the different parts of the federal government in various ways. I think that's great that they're reasserting their state sovereignty, whether it's fair weather, fair weather federalism or not, but whether you're red states or blue states, I think over the last uh, half century and more, states have just passed the buck up to Washington, and right. it's great that they're reasserting themselves. Uh, and uh, Congress uh, versus the executive, whether it's uh, actual lawsuits or or – um, more aggressive investigations. I think that's a healthy development. Now, as, as you said, uh, and this goes to the administrative state point as well. Um, I would hope that uh, you know part of the problem that 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 we're seeing in the the breakdown of our governance is that Congress doesn't have enough power. Now, that sounds like an odd thing for someone from Cato to say, but I'm not saying that the federal government doesn't have enough power. Right. I'm saying that it needs to be rebalanced. And congressmen love avoiding accountability by passing the Truth, Goodness, and Beauty Act of 2018 and letting the bureaucrats sort it out. And then when they do something that hurts their constituents, saying, oh, no, 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 I was for truth, goodness, and beauty. That 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 guy that, that's forcing you to pay thousands of dollars for a permit to develop your land, that, that wasn't what I intended at all. Right. And Congress really needs to assert itself. Mike Lee has been working on the Article One project, for example, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, and yet you're right. The, the, the founders uh, did not anticipate that party affiliation would uh, become stronger than branch uh, association, and that right. you just go along with whoever the leader of your party is, whatever branch you might be in, rather than jealously guarding the prerogatives of, uh, of your perspective, of, of, your, of, your, of your branch. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you heard it, but when the last time Ben Sass was on here, he told me the story about how he went and went on a sort of listening tour talking to Obama administration officials and asking them, you know, what sort of surprised you most and about this stuff and particularly about Congress and whatever. And, and they said one of the things that really shocked them was how many senators and congressmen would call or visit and ask that the White House do executive action X. And 
And what confused the guys in the White House was that the things they were asking them to do was like a 70% issue in their states, right? It was like really popular thing to do. And yet, rather than actually try to pass a law and get credit for doing this, they just wanted to lobby the executive branch to do it. And when asked, the senators say, yeah, it's a 70% issue, but I don't need to piss off the 30%. <laughs> if I ask, the, if the, if I, I, this way I can take credit with donors and voters and say that I successfully lobbied the administration to do X, but when the 30% who are pissed off come complaining, I say, hey, look, I didn't actually do it. It was the White House that yeah. did it, right? That's batty, right? Um, it's when um, I bring this up all the time, Cory Gardner, again, who I like, when Sessions changed that policy on weed, um, I don't remember the details of what it were. Cory Gardner blew a gasket saying this is outrageous. This is a violation of promises that were made to the state of Colorado and blah, 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 blah. And you would think that Cory Gardner was, you know, a cable news host and not actually an elected member of the U.S. And Senate. you don't see him introducing legislation or joining with Cory Booker or Rand Paul or yeah. some of these other people who are introducing legislation to right. decriminalize or legalize or whatever. Yeah. Heck, Chuck Schumer on April 20th, very appropriate there, the, the 420 holiday, you know, is, is uh, politically advantageously advancing uh, federalism on marijuana, which is great. Cory Gardner is not, you know, did not get ahead of him on that. You're right. Yeah, but, but the founders did not anticipate this idea that the Senate and the House would turn into a parliament of pundits rather than an actual body of legislators, right? How do we change that? And if we don't change that, isn't so much of our constitutional, you know, uh, you know, what has two thumbs and loves the Constitution? This guy, I'm pointing my thumbs at me. but He's actually not. Actually, I am. Just my arms are folded, so okay. you can't see him. But... uh we talk about the beautiful, intricate architecture of the founders' vision of the separation of powers and stuff, but it was based on assumptions that seem to be vanishing. And that strikes me as a bigger problem than sort of anything else. Well, that didn't start today or yesterday, John. I, I agree, but it's, it's worse today and it's going to be worse tomorrow. And, you know, at some point it's going to be so bad that it creates... Well, I think, I think what we need to do is dissolve the people and, and elect a new one, right? I... Because ultimately, the Constitution, and you know, there's no bigger constitutionalist than me. And in fact, uh, as we were talking before the show, I'm I'm a dual citizen. I'm a, uh, a Canadian American. I'm actually was born in Russia as well, although I've not put in for my Russian citizenship because uh. Putin would send me to East Ukraine to fight or, or something like that. But uh, you know, I just like naturalizing so much. I've done it twice. And few people have it's a great say hobby. that. Yeah. Uh, and and like most uh, immigrants, I do a job that most native-born Americans won't, and that's defending the Constitution, right? Yeah, the, right. The, the, <laughs> the zealotry of the of the convert. But uh, if, you and Charlie if, Cook, right? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if the uh, if the people uh, aren't going to demand uh, accountability and checks and balances and limited government and all those things that the Constitution, you know, securing and protecting our liberty by dividing the government powers and all of, all of that, then uh, there's there's nothing ultimately that that we, that we can do. Yeah. No, I, I agree that that's a big argument in my book is that the Constitution's real power is our belief in it, and if you don't believe in it, and if the people don't believe in it, then it's it really is just a piece of paper, right? All right. So that on that depressing oh, it's two hundred and twenty nine years is a pretty good run, though. It is. It is. It's a nice run. You know, it's sort of like in Seinfeld where he says, "Ah, oh, three years. That's a long time to be married." <laughs> <laughs> I'm celebrating my fifth anniversary this Friday, actually. Mazel tov. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So, where in Canada were you born? I was born in Russia, in Moscow. I'm sorry, yeah. We're, uh, it's like, you know, you know, the Americans' great show. I don't know if you watched yeah, it. Yeah, 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 but I haven't seen the... I, I'm, I'm not... Only... I, we just finished it this past week. Okay, I'm not going to no, give away any spoilers, no spoilers. but it's kind of like that. I'm, I was like a, a deep plant, but then the Soviet Union fell apart, uh-huh. and I, I'm not fully on board with the Putin agenda, so I'm kind of free-floating. I got you. So my wife got her 
masters in Soviet politics from Johns Hopkins literally the week the Soviet Union dissolved. <laughs> <laughs> That's like I was giving a talk to the Federal Society chapter at the University of Nebraska on Election Day 2016 on immigration. Nice. And that night I was overnighting in Des Moines. It happened to be the same hotel where the Iowa GOP was having their, their victory party, which was surreal. And uh, the next morning I, I emailed the, the, the student who invited me to, to speak at the University of Nebraska and said, hey, sorry, like 75% of the stuff I told you is now obsolete. <laughs> so how old were you when you moved from Russia? Uh, I turned four in temporary refugee settlement in uh, Italy. Uh-huh. Came to uh, came to Canada in October of '81. Uh, I was four and learned English from Sesame Street. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, went did. All and where my, in Canada did you live? Uh, Central Ontario, small town called Lindsay, and uh-huh. uh, moved to Toronto for high school. Same high school as uh, David from actually. Uh-huh. Uh We didn't overlap. He's quite a bit older than me. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then then went to the U.S. Uh, after that. Now they've been in the D.C. area for. 14 years. But the, the problem is the damn socialism keeps following me around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm looking, you know, I was just in, in New Zealand and Australia the last couple of weeks scouting for, for potential uh, future moves. We'll see. Well, this has always been one of my great complaints is that all these liberals who talk about how if so-and-so wins, I'm moving to France, right? They never do. Well, that, you know, that's one thing. But my problem is where's my, where's my right-wing France? You know, where is my, like, you know, libertarian, classical liberal, conservative nirvana? Um um, it just doesn't exist. So we got to, you know, this is the last readout. I mean, Australia's fine, but it's got its problems. Right. And England's got its problems. And that's about it, right? I'm not, I'm not going to Canada. It's just one it's giant. Cold. Well, you don't have a problem with the cold because you like Alaska. Yeah, well, I do. I married I, into Alaska. As a Russian Canadian, I'm an expert on snow and cold. My extra opi- expert opinion is that it sucks. So. Yeah, cold cold can beat you down. Um, all right, so uh, switching gears, this masterpiece cake thing with Bob. Yeah. Better than a lot of the alternatives, I mean, but Kennedy's, not a not as not that big a deal actually, right? Because it was so narrowly not right. Kennedy's opinion was kind of half baked. Uh-huh. Um, Are we going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> all right, we, I thought right. we've been doing it the whole time. All right, uh, all right. No, let's 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 put frosting on this mother. All uh, right, uh, not to be too saccharine, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. So ultimately, none of the big questions were resolved. Right? Is a baker uh, artistic enough to be protected by the First Amendment? Uh, can you assert a freedom of expression or freedom of religion argument to uh, avoid complying with an anti-discrimination law? Is there a difference between not serving gay people and not working a, a gay marriage? All of these questions and others, none of them were answered. Right. All, all that the opinion said was because the state uh, commission, the, the Colorado Civil Rights Committee, itself had an anti-religious bias, its actions violated Mr. Phillips' rights. That's all it said. Uh, and so David French tried in, in his uh, NRO piece to kind of gild the lily, or not gild the lily, but uh, put uh, lipstick on a pig, I guess. I messed up my, my metaphors, but uh, by saying, well, this is a victory for... Uh, Frosting on a rock, because we're doing cake. Sure. <laughs> Perfect, yes. Um, uh, he made me lose my train of thought. David French, you thought, was too yes. excited about it. Yes. Uh, well, he said that, well, now we see that uh, the government can't be bigoted against uh, religious believers when it acts. Well, you know, thanks for uh, small blessings, right? Uh-huh. Um, I'm not sure that's really that much of an advance. A cynic would say, and I wrote this uh, at the Federalist this morning, 
uh, a cynic would say that this means that as long as the bureaucrats keep their mouths shut, they can be as bigoted as they want right. in, in pursuing their their agenda. No, this just kicks the can down the road. Uh, and who knows? Uh, maybe the next time when it comes up, and it could come up very quickly. There's a, a case involving a Washington florist that's pending right now. We can we might learn within the week whether the Supreme Court takes it up, but we don't know whether Kennedy will be and on so the court. When I'm going to ask a series of questions that sort of like my pardon question at the beginning. I have my own views on, but I think they'll help for listeners to sort of cover some basics. Okay, why we all have First Amendment rights, right? Yes. So why does an artist and by, and by and to be clear and not to be overly lawyerly because I hate people who speak in legalese, but uh, uh, by all we mean even tourists, visitors, non-citizens, people. We all have, although. That might change, you know, uh, in, in terms of your immigration status. Uh, only green card holders and above, and citizens, can donate to political campaigns, for example. But okay. regardless, yeah. I mean, we, we can get to immigration stuff if you want. But let, let's just, all American citizens have First Amendment rights, right? Yes. Um, so why is it that the question of whether or not someone is an artist um, so important? Well, you can only assert a freedom of speech um, claim or protection if you're actually engaged in speech. And speech has been broadly defined to include everything from exotic dancing to flag burning to violent video games, regardless of what James Madison might have thought about violent video games. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he was more into, like, sports uh, than, than... Probably. You know. But... So, so to, to to get that protection, you can't just be employed. It's a separate argument about freedom of association or public accommodations or you know that line of thought that we can get into if you want. But not just anyone can assert a freedom of speech claim. You have to actually be engaged in speech. speech. Okay. And so the issue isn't whether the baker is an artist, although I would argue that he is. I've seen there's a great uh, brief filed by bakers, mm -hmm. uh, and deliciously it was filed by the law firm of Baker Botts. There you go. Um, but 27 color pictures of all these. It's like sculptures. They're, they're sculptures in fondant and buttercream rather than uh, marble or, or clay or what have you. Anyone who's seen Cake Wars knows there's some artistry. In Which I have not, but I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, so it's not a question about whether he's an artist, but whether he's engaged in expression. Uh -huh. uh, is there a message being conveyed? Do you need to have words to convey the message? Pretty clear that, that you don't because all these other things that, that don't have words uh, are protected. So that's where it is. It's an argument about, well, can we distinguish, you know, most people would say that Actual artists and singers and photographers are engaged in expression. PR writers, columnists, etc. Uh, whereas limo drivers, caterers, you know, Subway might say that its employees are sandwich artists, but still probably not engaged in expression in, in some way. So how do you draw the line? Where, where do you draw the line? I would be happy... Uh, if that's where the argument had been, you know, the Supreme Court trying to determine what is protected expression or not, uh, what kind of um, business is exp expressive, but that okay. that wasn't it. But that's why that question is important. So get uh, so but all right. So now getting to your sort of uh, libertarianness, should a limo driver be compelled to work a gay wedding if he doesn't want to? I don't think anyone should be compelled to do anything unless absolutely necessary, unless there's no. Uh, other way of accomplishing a truly important goal uh, that merits uh, violating that person's freedom of conscience and freedom of movement, freedom of action. Um, now, that's not what the law says. Mm -hmm. That's not a that's not a free speech claim, uh, and the freedom of religion claim fails easily because you can't just get a uh, 
get out of uh, law free card just be, by by asserting an objection, religious or otherwise. And I and I think that's right. I agree with that Supreme Court case. Uh, Employment Division versus Smith, where that radical transhuman secularist Antonin Scalia ruled that uh, if you want an exemption from a generally applicable law, go to the legislature, not don't ask a judge to carve it out for mm-hmm. you. Uh, and that's where RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, comes out, what, what, what was debated in Hobby Lobby and Little Sisters of the Poor, the contraceptive mandate, all that. So I don't think I don't think freedom of religion gets you there. It's freedom of association, really, where that where that mm-hmm. uh, is uh, where the rubber meets the road uh, for the limo driver or anyone. The freedom to not associate. That, as well. That's right. It's to decide uh, uh, who you who are going to be your friends and who are not, where you want to go and not. And that doesn't change whether there's a dollar sign associated with it or not. We don't lose our First Amendment rights if we're doing it for profit. You know, the government can only censor you if you're paid to speak or write or what have you. No, that's not the way it's done. Uh, the problem is we've gotten far away from our understandings of when the government can intrude on that freedom of association. So back in old England, the original public accommodations laws dealt with inns on the highway. And travelers, if you uh, weren't serving them at these inns, they had no place to stay or eat for hundreds of miles around. They would die of exposure and wild animals and, and what have you. And so this doctrine came about of public accommodations or common carriers also, uh, with uh, whether it be stagecraft or, 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 or um, ships or, or, or what have you, eventually trains. Um, but we've gone away from that where it's become applied to every business. And the common um, analogy or, or, or argument that's raised when libertarians or anyone else starts talking about this kind of classical common law view of public accommodations is, well, what about Jim Crow? Right. And my answer to that is, well, that fits neatly into that category because Jim Crow is either a state-supported segregation and oppression or, and or, uh, b, that situation where if the black travelers could not stay at the hotel or eat at the restaurant, they had no place to stay or eat. And right. so it's effectively the same sort of monopoly power um, situation. It's not the case where one out of a hundred or one out of a thousand businesses didn't want to serve them and their inconvenience was going across the street or down the street. Or in this case, literally uh, a tenth of a mile away, uh, uh, a bakery advertised that they made cakes for same-sex weddings. Right. And so it, it seems to me that particularly this, in this internet age where who randomly goes to a bakery and randomly orders a wedding cake? You do your research online or your wedding planner does or what have you. Uh, and so there's really no need uh, to force those – that extreme minority of, of bakers who object to same-sex weddings or photographers. There's a case out of New Mexico where one out of the 120 or so wedding photographers uh, didn't want to work the gay wedding. Um, there's no need to force that person. I mean, your feelings will be hurt, but our feelings are hurt all the time, right. daily, by in lots of situations. That doesn't rise to the level of government having to force someone to uh, bend the knee to prevailing orthodoxy. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, you know, I, I very much believe that the sort of the racial apartheid of the southern states needed to be crushed by the federal government. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about Jim Crow in that people don't understand is that, you know, take, for example, Tom Sowell's written some great stuff about this. You know, among the biggest opponents of segregated busing were the bus companies, you know, and... And it was precisely Plessy versus Ferguson was a test case brought by the railroad, right? Because they didn't want to have to provide all these separate uh, accommodations. That's right. And it gets to this fundamental thing that I keep harping on about, you know, from Adam Smith. You know, is that line in Adam Smith where he's in Wealth of Nations where he says 
seldom will, will two tradesmen or business people get together with that where the conversation won't turn into a conspiracy against the public. And what he means by that is that people form natural coalitions. They form self guilds, essentially, of their own self-interest. And that's unavoidable. The only time it's bad is when the state comes in and sanctions that. And so the problem with Jim Crow was that racism was going away because one of the great things about the market is that it makes racism unprofitable. And so the state had to go in and impose these regulations from above because the system of apartheid was melting away. And the biggest problem was was that black people could move because there were labor markets that you know could demand their labor. And so Jim Crow was a way to regulate the labor market in a way to keep black people from being able to find work and keep wages artificially low for a few businesses who had the legislatures in their pockets. And um, and so this is one of the things that drives me crazy with all these associations of capitalism with you know slavery in the United States. It's a lot more complicated than all that, but we don't have to get in the weeds on that. But in a perfect world, which we both agree we're not going to amortize the eschaton anytime soon, do you think that, say, a diner where there are a lot of other diners around should be able to refuse anybody for any reason whatsoever? Uh, yes. Okay. Assuming there are lots of diners around and it's not the circumstance where it's you know, the, the one for hundreds of miles around or something like that. Um, now if that diner adopts – It's not a matter of law though, but it's just in a, in a – that, That's my right. – yes. Uh, I'm going outside. I'm a simple constitutional lawyer, so this goes beyond my area of expertise into you know, basic political theory. Uh, unfrozen caveman constitutional lawyer here pretty much <laughs> um so uh but but but, but uh, let me be clear the if the diner were to take a policy of like we don't serve blacks uh not only would that be unprofitable because they're cutting themselves off from a lot of potential clients but they'd also be boycotted and be national news and right. it would be unprofitable they'd go out of business for that reason right letting letting social opprobrium work its course is a valuable thing and you know, to me, it's sort of like the, the analogy is to when – what was the Indiana thing? RIFRA? Yes. Yeah. AB, I think it was ABC. I don't want to slander ABC if it wasn't them. But some local reporter was sent to go around and ask one business after another, would you do? Would you cater a gay party, you know, a gay wedding or something like that? And they found some – A pizzeria. Some random pizzeria. And they basically were almost pelted out of business and their lives yeah. destroyed for some offhand comment from the manager at the place. And that among, first of all, I thought that was absolutely crappy journalism, but, and, and it showed the nastiness of sort of the Twitter mob forces in America, but it demonstrates the point that the amount of social opprobrium that comes from discriminating against people is far greater than any of the impulses towards a handmaid's tale kind of country. I mean, they're just, those people have remarkably little cultural power and we tend to worry about the things that that we that that are the smallest problems in our lives rather than the greatest problems in sure. our lives you know i think fundamentally in 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 this and a lot of other questions the problem is people um forget the difference or don't know the difference between public and private action state right. action and 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 individual not non-state action uh, I'm one of three lawyers in the country. The other two are, are law professors who filed briefs supporting both Jim Obergefell and uh, Jack Phillips. Uh, mm -hmm. Obergefell being the challenge to the uh, marriage laws and uh, Jack Phillips being Masterpiece Cake Shop. And Cato is the only organization in the country, the only one to file briefs on, on those sides. And uh, people look at us like we're crazy, but it, it's you – know, the government has to treat everyone equally and, you know – 
I don't want to get into a debate about gay marriage, but uh, to me, this is a, a, a an occupational licensing question. If the sure. state's going to be involved yeah. in licensing marriage, then you know. Uh, anyway, it can't but, pick winners and losers, right? Yeah. But but a baker is not a government agent. A uh, a limo driver is not a government agent. Uh, you know that sort of thing. And uh, an employer, the the Hobby Lobby company, is not a government agent. Um, so, and the problem is, I think people are lose track of that distinction. And the more the government gets involved through mandates and regulations, not just taxing and spending, uh, not just the fiscal side of the ledger, but through mandates and regulations, it crowds out the what we used to call the public but non-governmental sphere, the, right. the third places in civil society and, and all of that. And so we're left with things that you cannot or must do outside the home and the other things that you can do in the home, whatever you want. And that's, uh, that's unhealthy. I, I agree with that entirely. All right. I guess we should do some Supreme Court punditry. <laughs> uh, Eric Erickson, a fan of this podcast and a handsome and powerful man, uh, he <laughs> tweeted um, the other day, or maybe it was just yesterday, I don't know, that Trump's tweets about pardoning and obstruction and all these kinds of things pretty much guarantee that, that Justice Kennedy is going to change his mind about retiring and ride out the Trump administration. I have not. I used to be much more interested in Supreme Court gossip than I am these days. But um, I assume that you're still. I don't think people, a lot of people outside of Washington, understand how much Supreme Court gossip there is in Washington. Um, what is your sense of that? Do you think that's right? Maybe right? Not at all right? I tell people, whether they're reporters or otherwise, that unless you hear something from Justice Kennedy or his wife directly, discount the rumor. Uh, there's gossip it's 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 more like speculation than gossip there's sure no, there's no there's no basis in it and the, and the supreme court the judiciary as an institution works very differently from congress or the executive branch there aren't leaks uh there aren't there's not lobbying it's not like can i get a meeting with the clerk of the for this justice to right. press my you, know, you file your brief and that's it everything else is a black box and it's all um it's neater in, in that way in, in in a certain sense but they but but then when the decision comes out they have to explain themselves um, so it's it's an interesting institution that way. There's a, a kind of a, a set piece there that's uh, that's much less messy than than lobbying and, and what have you. But I don't think that these are the sorts of things that Kennedy uh, is thinking about. I mean, the, the, all the Trumpy stuff is probably baked into his decision making as much as it's baked into Trump's approval ratings and whatnot. And the latest scandal is not going to be the thing that finally knocks Trump out. I mean, I think we've learned that it it sort of is what it is. And no, but my point. Let me be here. Eric's point was that Kennedy, I think this is fair to say, I, mean, I know you say discount any gossip, Kennedy has a rather high regard for his role as the, as the deciding vote on the Supreme Court. And the, the, the way I read Eric was, was that he, this tweeting stuff suggested that maybe there is a constitutional crisis coming down the road and he wants to be there for it. And that otherwise, if he thought things were going to be fairly normal, he's ready to retire, he wants to retire – that's again. Those are, those are the rumors. You just don't put any sure, stake that, in it. That's that's a that's a plausible uh, story to tell. Another plausible uh, story is that he's been on the court for thirty years. He's been involved in lots of high stakes cases. He's been the deciding vote on lots of big cases that will be remembered. He's done his thing, and uh, you know, while I'm still healthy, I want to go enjoy my uh, later years with my wife. And I've already served uh, a full term with my former clerk Neil Gorsuch. There's really nothing more for me to do. So you think I, – I don't think it matters one way or another. I think it's – I don't think the cal- – I don't – I mean I don't think Kennedy's calculus changes with this. It's it's where he is in his life. I don't think it's, you know, oh, there's a big juicy case coming down the pike next year. We just granted this. Got to stick around for that. 
something like that is more likely than Trump's latest tweet affecting his uh, okay. decision. Okay, fair enough. So without being too macabre about individual <laughs> justices' health, when do you think there's going to be another opening? Uh, last year, I did not think that Kennedy would retire um, for various, again, speculative reasons, just my my hunch. This year, I think it's probably 50-50, slightly more likely than not that he will retire. But again, going just on, you know, he served the term with his uh, w- w- with Gorsuch. He's uh, 81 now, still in decent health. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, this is one of the cushiest jobs you can have. It's a great job. Yeah. Uh, you have the smartest uh, law school graduates in the country as your clerks that are doing most of your work. You only decide a certain number of cases each year. You have your summers off. You can go teach wherever. So he doesn't have to leave. I, I don't know. Uh, it's it's really we won't hear it coming. And RBG? Yeah, that's between her and her trainer, I guess. Uh, <laughs> you know, she's survived cancer a couple of times. I, I think she's been called frail since she was 15 years old. So, you know, God bless her. Um, I, I think she's going to have to be, uh, she's not leaving of her own, own volition. All right, so let's just assume. Could ha- I mean, you know, who knows? Nobody was expecting Scalia to go. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Clarence Thomas has gained weight over the years. John Roberts had a weird seizure 10 years ago, something like that. I mean, who knows? They're looking for the grace of God. Go on. So let's assume there is a vacancy in the next six months. Who would you you guess are the one, two, or three most likely people that Leonard Leo Leo tells Trump? (laughs) Well, first of all, Trump has no incentive to pick off list. Right. There's this terrific list of fabulous judges. Uh, they, they are great. I mean, the, the li- this was one, one of Trump's masterstrokes to put out this list because it really held his coalition together um, when people were like, well, the GOP is going to fall apart. But no, look at the the judges in the Supreme Court and all that. Um, so you look at that list. There are currently 25 people on the list. He's added to it. Of course, Gorsuch has already been elevated. You take away the people who are over 60. Mm-hmm. You take away the very young people. There's a couple of uh, people still in their 30s. Uh, you take away the – there's two more Coloradans. I would take them away because you're not going to have that. And you're left with something like 17 people. Of those, you look at who were the finalists the last time around. I don't think they've lost sway or, or – Standing. Standing with, with Trump or, or otherwise. Those would be Tom Hardiman is a judge in, uh, in out of Pittsburgh on the Third Circuit. Not the biggest kind of theoretical guy. He's a judge's judge. Uh, definitely kind of a federal society type, but not a, a, a big theoretician. There's uh, Ray Kethledge out of the Sixth Circuit. Uh, that's the middle of the country. I think he's in Michigan. There is Don Willett, who was uh, moved from the Texas Supreme Court to the Fifth Circuit in, t- in, in, in Texas still. A devastating blow to Twitter. Uh, d- yeah, I keep telling Don that he needs to go back to Twitter. Uh, we actually DM. He sends uh-huh. me clever things to, to tweet out. Um, he's uh, Here's my secret. About a quarter of my dad jokes uh, are from him. Interesting. So, um, he no, he's great. I think, you know, I clerked on the Fifth Circuit. I know a lot of those judges, and he's kind of trying to feel his way out before he makes a firm decision about how active to be on, on Twitter or whatnot. But, but yeah, he, he was the judiciary's Twitter laureate, not, not that it was a, a very high bar, but, but he was being considered. Uh, I think Ray Groinder out of St. Louis in the Eighth Circuit, uh, another kind of solid, you know, conservative, not, not the huge theoretician type, um, but very well uh, reputed. Um, and then you have to consider the, one of the people who was uh, added uh, very recently, Brett Kavanaugh, out of the D.C. Circuit, mm-hmm. um, who was in the Bush administration and then elevated to the D.C. Circuit. He's He's got this boyish face. I think he looks younger than I do. And he's, he's in his early 50s. Um, 
the biggest he's he's well regarded and very smart writes uh fascinating intellectual opinions but in the Obamacare cases when they were coming up he on jurisdictional grounds threw out the challenge uh, and that some people say is, is is a knock against him. Anyway, those are you know this is getting really into the weeds of the, of uh-huh. the punditocracy. Um, uh, but I don't think he, Trump has any incentive to go off list, uh, whether to someone who's well regarded or a uh, Rudy Giuliani or Chris Christie or something, because that gains him nothing. You know, his base doesn't know one way or another, and uh, and he would lose the respect of the of the federal society types if he did. So. So there we have it. But look, um, if uh, if the vacancy does arise, if Kennedy at the end of this month uh, announces his retirement, and uh, that's when the announcement would come. That's when it would come. Um, stay tuned for the last week of June when the last cases come down. I mean, it could come at any time. He could be on vacation with his wife in July and be like, "All right, you know what? I'm done." And and he tweets out his retirement or or, or what have you, or he leaks it to Jim Comey who tweets it out. Um, but but if if it happens before the election, then then I think uh, McConnell would. Uh, would ram somebody through. Uh, if it happens, if, if the if the if the Democrats take the Senate, then we're going to have a vacancy until the next presidential election. Right, right. Because um, what we've learned is the only thing that matters for confirming judges is having a majority in the Senate. Right. And and one of the great and glorious things, you know, look, I've been saying this for a while now that if hypocrisy were helium, we'd all have funny voices, and some people would just float away. Um, but nothing brings out partisan hypocrisy more than judicial battles. I mean, I think Cato, by virtue of the fact that it's kind of got a true north, doesn't have that problem. Um, but I guarantee the people who were saying that what McConnell did to to get Gorsuch on the court with Merrick Garland or whatever, um, and that this was a profound violation of democratic norms, will instantaneously support uh, leader, majority leader Schumer in his decision to wait until the next presidential election and the people who thought that what McConnell did was absolutely brilliant and fantastic will take the exact opposite position, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's base politics. And look, the thing is, a vacancy arising during a presidential election year is rare enough. The last time we had a confirmation to such a vacancy by a Senate held by the opposite party to the White House was 1888. Right. Very different time. Tall hats, bushy uh, sideburns, all that. So you do you had no f- fundamental first principle problems with what McConnell did to get no. okay. no. And you would have no fundamental first principle problems if Schumer did the same thing. It's a purely political calculus. Uh, you know, I don't know if the American people would, would, would stand for you know, four years of, a, uh, of an, of an eight-justice court. They, they seem to have supported the idea of uh, having an election over this and, and – as I said, I don't think, frankly, Trump would not have won uh, without oh, I agree with that. the Scalia vacancy. Yeah, I mean, the, the the first and foremost mandate, as I keep saying, that Trump had was that he was not he, – he promised not to be Hillary Clinton. Yep. And, um, and the other – the second most important one was the court stuff. And those were the only two issues that truly unified everybody on the right. To, to give you some, some stats, it's quite remarkable. The Republicans had – I think it was something like fifty something percent of Republicans. Fifty uh, percent of Republicans uh, put judges in their in their top three issue areas, and much lower. I mean, it's twenty percent higher than than the Democrats did. Uh, of those who, uh, for whom judges were the number one issue, Republicans won fifty six forty four. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's just mind blowing. And, and we're not talking about 
the elite lawyers in the big cities. If you read Selena Zito's and, and Brad Todd's book, I mean, you're talking to diner waitresses and small town farmers in Iowa, and they're talking about this stuff. And not simply guns, that's part of it. The Second Amendment is certainly part of it. But just judges who, in effect, will respect their culture. And when they're talking about culture, they mean, you know, their religion and their way of life, but, but they really mean the constitutional culture of, you know, get the federal government away so, from me. Yeah, no, that's right. At, at base. It's, so, it's right. Well, there's, there's one vignette that, that, that is in this book, uh, where, again, I forget whether it was a small businessman or a farmer, but he talks about how Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan are no Bill Brennan and Thurgood Marshall. <laughs> like, regardless of whether that is correct legal analysis. Right. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, how many elite lawyers would be able to have those names on the tip of their tongues? Yeah. Um, so, every couple of years, I write this column in one form or another. Part of my argument why the confirmation battles have become so ugly, basically starting with Borg, right, is that, you know, people say, oh, my gosh, look at all – they're running these confirmation battles like they're presidential campaigns. And they're spending all this money on advertisements on TV and blah, 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 blah. It's like, well, yeah, if – when you think about it, a judge if, – if a Supreme Court justice is at, 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 at minimum one-ninth of a president, right, and one-ninth one of the legislative branch because what the Supreme Court – because the Supreme Court and the courts in general are so involved in areas that they were once not involved in, the stakes for judicial appointments are just so, – it's another example of one of these things that the founders didn't anticipate about the Supreme Court basically being a hybrid executive branch and legislative branch. And when when it becomes that, the perceived stakes in an appointment become so much greater. If the Supreme Court had hewed to – you know, forget Marbury versus Madison, had huge just sort of the founder's original plan for the Supreme Court, very unlikely that most Americans could tell you the name of a Supreme Court justice. Absolutely. In most countries, people don't know the names of the yeah. Supreme Court justices. That's um, what I love about Switzerland. A lot of people there don't know the name of the president, which yeah. I think is awesome. Sure. I mean, and in countries that are troubled, you get in the taxis, and this is the, you know, the Tom Friedman mode of political analysis, uh, and you can have very sophisticated arguments about the uh, political economy of the particular country because everyone's paying attention to everything going to pot all the time. Right. I think it's uh, a mark of health if uh, you have kind of uh, less civic fluency in the ins and outs of the, the various workings in your capital city. But uh, but yeah, the Supreme Court matters a lot. Every, every June, it decides uh, a handful of the biggest political issues uh, in the country. And that that's a fairly recent phenomenon, um, and, and, it, and it's because going back to the New Deal era, the, the court all of a sudden started uh, deferring to the legislative branches, and effectively now we have the final realignment where you have constitutional and statutory interpretation theories that are so far apart but map onto ideological modes or, or, or parties uh, that themselves are more sorted ideologically than they've ever been. And yeah. so the stakes are high, and I don't blame the senators for uh, making a, a big circus out of it and demagoguing it because these things matter, and depending on where your your your, your ideological priors are, you're going to want completely different kinds of judges. That's not healthy, uh, and people increasingly start thinking of judges and justices in uh, partisan terms. That's not healthy, but there's no way around it, given the way that the jurisprudence has gone. And this goes beyond the Supreme Court. Yeah, justices and judges 
uh, last 30 years. I think, frankly, it's the big, you know, we're talking about pardons and all this stuff. I think it's the biggest power the president has, at least domestically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's to yeah. nominate judges. For 30 years, they have this huge footprint. Each president, each presidential term nominates uh, about uh, a fifth, about 20%. So a two-term presidency, 40% of the judiciary. That's huge, yeah, right? Yeah. And the lower courts decide 50,000 cases a year. The Supreme Court's doing its best to put itself out of business. They decide 60-some. 50,000 cases. That's uh, that's a big deal. So, all right, I got three last questions, and then we got to wrap this up. Um, first, this is purely my own personal self-indulgence of my eggheadery side. Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of the worst justices in history. Okay, uh, stipulated. Um, I once got asked Judge Bork about Holmes. He was pretty salty, but um, uh, um, Bork was a lot like Holmes. We'll get to that later. Or perhaps on a sequel podcast. Holmes is often credited for the concept of judicial restraint, right? You know, he's the one who says, if if the people want to go to hell, I'll let them. Or I, I'll I, help them get there. I'll help them get there, right? So when I was working on my first book, I read a lot of Holmes and I read, read a lot about Holmes. And, you know, he's a major figure in the metaphysical club. He was a major figure in intellectual circles back then. Do you think that he would be a... Um, that he would have advocated judicial restraint if the progressives weren't running the various legislative and, exec- and at times executive branch. Um, and so they were doing what he wanted them to do. And so therefore he said, why am I going to get in their way? Like if, if Calvin Coolidge clones were running everything, would he still be for judicial restraint? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question to ask. I mean, the whole theory of judicial restraint was, uh, as far as I know, developed by uh, Harvard professor James Bradley Thayer uh, uh-huh. in the 1880s and 90s. I wasn't saying he invented it. but right, No, no, I know, I know. And he had a big influence on, on Holmes. Uh, and that you know, judicial restraint, uh, as you just described, was a progressive judicial mode. Right. Um, and so it was ironic that conservatives ended up, you know, Bork and otherwise, ended up picking it up. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. But but what, what what I do find uh, kind of a not delicious but a bitter irony uh, is that when conservatives advocate for judicial restraint, for deference to the the other branches rather than judges judging and letting the the chips fall where they may, they're making common cause with the original progressives uh, on this. Um, there's no better example of this than John Roberts in his vote uh, in the first Obamacare case, right? Uh, where he did not join the liberals in saying that well there are no limits on federal power. Instead, he kind of tried to write an opinion uh, that would just defer to the political branches without changing the the legal architecture uh, too much. I had an article in uh, where I used that example in uh, National Affairs called "Against Judicial Restraint" that traces out all this argument. Um, I should go get that, and we should put that in the show notes. Okay. Second question: What are the constitutional issues raised by my? weird obsession with creating a core of computer hackers and giving them letters of mark to go screw with other countries who mess with us. Now, is this pro- this this project dovetail with giving the pope an army? It's 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 in the same file cabinet in my head of outside the box issues, um but the controlling legal authorities for the pope to do his army of papal ninjas is very different than the controlling legal authority right. that would allow us to create letters of mark grant which is in the constitution yes letters of mark to essentially privateers to um harass um what about, our enemies nobody talks about letters of reprisal because it's letters of mark and reprisal yeah yeah i'm open to that yeah. you know um so you you just you just want to dodge this one 
you know, <laughs> I'm not a scholar of letters of Marx and and and, and, repri- and reprisal. So uh, all right, so it's it's there with a ton of. I, I can neither say I can neither say anything intelligent or funny about it. So all right, all right, fair enough. Um, lastly, the reason I brought that up is that one of my questions these days is to ask people what weird, odd, outside the box, unconventional idea, theory, passion in the political, eggheady, philosophical world do you hold that would be greeted by people as being as weird as my obsession with papal ninjas and letters of Mark? And if you don't have an answer, it's okay, but... You're asking me for my, my weird kinks? Not in a, in a, you know, Bigfoot erotica sense. Yeah. I just mean in a sort of, you know, as you know, in this town, there are certain issues, questions, topics that um, can ignite all sorts of fun, utterly pointless arguments over beers about the way things should be, or this is my pet peeve about something. Um, If you don't have one, that's fine. But, you know, it's like, you know, my point is, is like, I have a bunch of these where, you know, my, my dad, I'll give you an example. My dad used to talk often about how so many of our environmental and economic problems could be solved if we just shrunk people to about six inches tall. And uh, That was a movie. It was a movie recently, which really pissed me off because um, I have strong feelings about all this. But uh, And it was actually a plot of, an, of um, a Super Friends in the 1970s, but that's a different issue. Um, I think I vaguely remember that. Uh, and it's not like my dad was going around writing op-eds on this. <laughs> but... Is there some, you know, do you want to get rid of the Third Amendment? Do you want to, in what, what, is there any kind of thing like that? Uh, well, I mean, kind of prosaically. Uh, have, do you want to annex Canada? I have this wacky idea of having the Constitution followed as written. Uh, the, the main amendment that we need is at the end of every sentence to add, and we mean it. Um, that's kind of a boring, uh, nerdy answer. It's all right. Uh, but you just stole my thunder because I was going to, as my whimsical answer, I was going to say annex Canada. Uh-huh. Uh, and this, this wasn't just that I came up on the fly. Um, I had a rather, uh, uh, unusual childhood in the sense that, you know, we described my, my journey from the Soviet Union, but from a very early age, once I started reading history books and found that I, I preferred life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness to peace, order, and good government, which uh-huh. is the Canadian equivalent. I just um, felt, I don't know if it's uh, resentment or a certain just, uh, you know, phantom limb or something. I felt that my parents, my family uh, really ought to have turned left at the St. Lawrence Seaway rather than right. I've wanted to be American since I was very little. I had the American flag, which I pledged allegiance to in my locker in middle school in central Ontario. This made me very popular. Luckily, I was also athletic, so I didn't really get beat up. Uh Uh, Otherwise, clearly I would have. But I I had this weird America fetish um, because of, uh, well, life, liberty, and and pursuit of happiness. This is like the Peter Schramm thing, which I quote every now and then, which, you know, my father-in-law recently passed away. And Peter Schramm, who was born in in Hungary, um, Peter died a few years ago. Um, He was a great guy. He tells this wonderful story about how when his father, who went through some rough stuff both in world war ii and also during the up the uprising told his son told peter we're moving to america and peter says why america and he said his father says because we were born americans just in the wrong place you know and that is one of the things you know this is one of my peeves i mean we don't need to get into all the immigration stuff but the story of immigrants who are so in some ways 
more American than anybody yeah. else um, as either being, according to the left, victim icons or the right, you know, invaders and takers and whatnot really just bums me out. Well, in my specific case, my, my greatest historical regret is that the War of 1812 turned out as it would have, because otherwise this question would have been moot. Because? The United States would have conquered Canada anyway. Yeah, okay. I mean, I've, the, there are a couple different scenarios of how the War of 1812 could have ended. I mean, we, Well, in the way that I'm describing that's apt for concluding my thought about annexing Canada. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, just so you know, I know this, this warms your heart. Pat Buchanan in the 90s wrote a couple times about um, how we should peel off, uh, that Canada should break up and that we should peel off the best parts and annex them. Uh, yeah, well, right. If I were doing a serious political, political analysis, I'm not about to... Uh, um, you don't want to John ad- Bolton your way into annexing Canada, right? John Bolton? I just mean you don't want to actually like neocon your way and... and no, no. That no, would get no, you kicked no, out of Cato, right? No, right. Uh, no. Uh, uh, nor would I want to... Uh, you know, add ten liberal democratic senators immediately to the to the Senate. I mean, in terms of political sure. real, real politics. So we got to take like, you know, the Alberta, middle parts, right? Alberta, Alberta yeah. you know, maybe yeah. uh, the stuff up in Yukon territory. Yeah, maybe give New England to Canada. The Tories there. That might work. That yeah. might work. All right. Well, Ilya, thank you for coming on. Um, I think we'll have you back when we do our first annual traditional Supreme Court review episode. Although, um, who knows? And um, thanks for coming. My pleasure. I, I hope that uh, your fans' um, desire for more Shapiro has been satiated, at least for this week. The, you know, it's, Shapiro is the cowbell of podcasting. So, All right. Thank you. All right. So Ilya's left the building, and we're going to do a little various and sundry and some possibly some rank punditry. Because uh, I don't know if we're going to have another uh, episode um, this week. We haven't discussed that, but we rarely discuss anything before <laughs> we do it. So who knows? What do you think of Ilya? I, my favorite moment from this, and this is something that, well, you sort of described it once it happened, but there's nothing, it doesn't quite compare to seeing it actually happen, was when he just calmly pulled his pocket constitution out of his jacket. <laughs> that, was a, that was a total libertarian move. That was a major Cato move. Yeah. Um, uh, I feel I don't need to say anything more about him other than that he did that. That yeah. says it all. Well, and then he took it from stereotype to caricature by talking about how he didn't actually have the one printed up for his marriage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or his wedding, whatever. All right. So a couple things. First of all – oh, uh, before, before if we get to the rank punditry stuff, I just – because no one else will point it out. On two episodes of this this podcast – the last one with Tim Carney and the one with with Nick Eberstadt, I caught I, – I brought up this John Bolton thing about Bolton saying Libya model, Libya model and how weird I thought that was. And everyone – and Carney and, and Eberstadt, they humored me but they all looked at me like, let's – aren't you maybe overreading this thing? And then like last week while I was on the road, it emerged that this is what probably blew up before it got put back on the the North Korea – summit was that Bolton kept going around saying Libya model to the point where Trump actually had to say, no, 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 we're not thinking of the Libya model. That's, that's crazy stuff. And I am now, and now, now Bolton, full disclosure, former AEI colleague, former Fox News colleague, used to see him all the time. Now it sounds like Bolton is 
maybe not long for the administration precisely because, well, I don't just say precisely because, but perhaps because um, he was doing exactly what I was raising on the podcast, which was that he was trying to do this poison pill thing by raising the Libya model in all these Sunday show interviews that the North Koreans would pick up on and hear and interpret as, oh, you want to take away our nuclear weapons and then kill us. And, um, uh, and Trump didn't pick up on it. North Koreans did, and they went ballistic on it. Um, so to speak. So to speak, yeah. <laughs> um, and now they're uh, – and now so Bolton has been put on the sidelines and can't be in the room with any of these meetings, I think precisely because John all along was trying to play some really clever inside bureaucratic stuff about, you know, about mixing this stuff. I may still be wrong, but the evidence that I was right or the or at least the evidence – that I was right to sort of catch him saying this is much stronger. And I believe just to toot my own horn, um, not in a Ron Jeremy kind of way, uh, that this was, uh, that no one else was sort of catching on to that at the time. And so I, I, I want, I want two pundit points on the board for me. <laughs> I will mark them up and I will also <laughs> mark another, uh, notch on the influence of this podcast in, in, Risking the career of a of a White House official. Congratulations. <laughs> oh, I don't, no, no. I, I think there's no causation from this podcast to to Donald to to, to John Bol- Bolton. There's no connective tissue there. I just think that I just thought it was so weird the way he kept bringing it up that it must have been deliberate and it must have been aimed for a North Korean audience. And I think I was right about that. But. Anyways, well, I know smart. this podcast was basically started so that posterity would reflect the fact that you were right about various things. So that's here, true. Here you go, posterity. Jonah was right. Yeah, yeah. there, there it is. The these broadcast these waves are making their way out to the Alpha Centauri as we speak. Yeah. And the list of things I am right about is 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 yet to be finished. Yeah. Uh, we'll um, put it on the the next Voyager record when we. Oh, and speaking of things to be right about, I can get this one bit of rank punditry out of the way, and then we can do the other show note stuff. So we're recording this on a Tuesday. Bill Clinton on Monday talked to the Today Show, and he got himself in all of this trouble for being Bill Clinton and um, and not knowing how to defend himself in a way that didn't make him seem even more Clinton-esque about the Me Too stuff and the Monica Lewinsky stuff and all that kind of thing. And again, I will just say without revisiting all of that stuff emanating from the president's pants 25 years ago, it is now the conventional wisdom – of basically the sort of Mika Brzezinski, Morning Joe crowd, the, the the all of the liberal Democratic pundits that I've seen responding to the Clinton thing, that I was, to use a technical term from social science, 100% correct in everything that I was saying 25 years ago. Because 25 years ago, I was talking, because I was bathed in this stuff. Having, Ew. <laughs> and yeah, it's probably a bad idea. I was, I was indoctrinated into so much of this stuff in college about sort of the, the, the sexual harassment doctrine and how you should always believe women and how even uh, consensual relationships between disproportionately powerful and, un- and non-powerful people were inherently corrupting, all this kind of stuff. And I was saying exactly those things that now Monica Lewinsky says in her Vanity Fair piece that now is the premise of all of these questions for the Me Too stuff. Um, no one will go back and say, partly because I was an insignificant pipsqueak back then um you know oh jonah goldberg was right or even that the conservatives were right but if you just simply compare and contrast the good faith serious arguments that were made by conservatives during the all of the Lewinsky stuff and the 
arguments that are being made, because there was a lot of bad faith garbage out there too, I'm fully willing to admit. Um, and you l- listen to what is now the conventional elite enlightened position on, on this stuff, it has come full circle. The liberals are now taking the conservative position on all of this kind of stuff, and I just find it hilarious. So another two points on the board, on the pundit board for me. I will mark them. And so what you're saying is that you you feel Bill Clinton's pain, and it's giving you a lot of pleasure. Yes, and that's why this week's episode is brought to you by Schadenfreude. Thank you, because I never got back to that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, I'm, I'm good for some things. Um, any other rank punditry things you want to get out of the way? No, it was the Bolton thing and, and this thing. I think that were it. We covered all the pardon stuff in the and the meaty part of the podcast. And gosh, no, there was one other sort of thing from a recent episode that I wanted to address, but I can't remember what it was. Um, you wanted to double down on some sci-fi thing? Well, yeah, I actually, without realizing it, I provided some great segues that you ignored, but appropriately. I didn't, we, you had things left to say, but I, I mentioned Alpha Centauri and the Voyager record. Okay. Star Trek. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I know that this is, an, this is sort of a controversial thing to bring up in National Review World, but uh, John Podoritz, who is often mocked on this podcast, he said something... Lovingly. Lovingly mocked. Yes. He said something that I think is absolutely correct on Twitter, which is that Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is better than any Star Wars movie. And the, the 36th anniversary of that movie's release was yesterday. So I just want to double down on this. I think, it's, I think it is better. I think it, it's great, great score, great villain, mature themes... Better, uh, better interpersonal dynamics between characters. It's better. Let's let's just face it. It's better. Um, this puts me in a very strange position because I love Star Trek Two, Star Trek Two, Godfather Two, um, Terminator Two Judgment Day. No, not Terminator Two Judgment Day. Um, aliens. Aliens. There are only a handful of movies that can claim. To be, and I'm not saying necessarily that I think Godfather 2 is better than the first one, but I think it's a defensible argument. I don't think you're crazy for making the argument, but there are only a handful of movies that are, that are, that are better, there are sequels that are better than the original. It's a little unfair to bring this up in the context of Star Trek 2 because Star Trek 1 was putrid garbage of the first order. <laughs> um, and um, simply because you brought up Voyager, I have, I have my, Memories of Star Trek One buried behind so many layers of resentment that it takes more than one sort of offhand V'ger reference for, <laughs> for it to call forth and conjure it. But uh, I think the problem there is is that Star Wars was an original piece of work, right? And it played on myth, and it was it was doing something very different than Star Trek Two was, and and Star Trek Two was derivative not just of a series, but of a specific episode of a series, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm not... I, look, I, I I told Ben Sass on an episode of this podcast that, that I cried, and I did. I cried when Spock died. Yeah, and, and I, his response to that was to... I can't remember which came first, but he said something that... It, more or less in the, in the episode, he said his equivalent experience to this was watching Nebraska lose uh, the college football championship uh, when he was like 12 or something. So that's that that sort of illustrates the differences between the two of you. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, it's funny because Sass and I have similar sarcastic ways of and senses of humor and stuff, but we have very little common cultural <laughs> stuff to 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 work with um, between the two of us. Star Trek Two had uh, had had Merrick Buttrick in it. 
Do you know who he was? Uh, which he is, he's not Kirk's son. In he, the is, movie. he is okay. Kirk's son. And what sitcom was he a uh, star on? Oh gosh, ask your glop co-host about <laughs> this. I don't know. He was on Square Pegs. I I've um, never heard of Square Pegs, and I'm a really pretty, no. Uh, I, Square Pegs, in a lot of ways, was the beginning of that entire genre of like freaks and geeks and all that kind of stuff, of the sort of irreverent high school um, sitcom. What, what's what gave Sarah Jessica Parker her start? Oh, okay. Um, and Merrick Buttrick was brilliant in that. I thought he was kind of awful on Star Trek too. But um, and certainly bad in Star Trek Three, mm-hmm. and uh, but no, look, I, I I thought Star Trek Two was was a great action movie, sci-fi movie. I think it played, it didn't. So Star Wars plays on like what Joseph Campbell kind of myths and all that kind of yeah, stuff, which right? is like cheating, really. Well, and so Star Trek Two plays on, you know, I, I some of those great. World War II submarine movies, you know? Yeah, like the original series episode, Balance of Terror. Yeah, some of that. And um, I'm not, you know, you just, I'm sorry, sir, you're not going to force me in a corner to denigrate Star Trek II. I'm just not sure you can claim it was the best sci-fi movie ever made. Because it doesn't raise that many interesting sci-fi questions. Then again, neither does Star Wars. Oh, well, but it raises life questions. The whole movie is a meditation about aging and loss, I think. I mean, just think about what happens and... What's that? What's what Kirk is thinking about at the beginning since it's his birthday and he needs the new glasses and yeah. And at the end he says, "I feel young again." Yeah, I think it's just beautiful. Yeah, and also it gives us the opportunity to uh, play the con um, sound clip at the beginning of the show. Okay, I'll, I'll work that in. Oh, which reminds me, um, and listener feedback is greatly appreciated on this. Um, as much as I appreciate the music and the the generosity of um, uh, you know the people who've contributed music that we've gone through and all this kind of stuff. Um, I have I have some pretty serious problems with the Washington Free Beacon podcast. Um, oh, do we have a new podcast enemy? No, no, it's not an enemy. Um, you know, we'll, we'll you know if, if if they continue to rise in the ranks, maybe they'll be worthy of enmity. But their opening sound montage, I think, might be something worth experimenting with. You know, maybe you could let the intern out of the the crate. And let them play around with this, but they do this, you know, sort of soundboard montage of different recognizable pop culture sounds. And I'm not sure what they would should be for ours. You know, it could be a triple freaking out when it meets a Klingon. Um, it could be the one sound effect that Lost in Space had. It could be Cyrus screaming, "Can you dig it?" I, I don't know, but I think it's an interesting way to go. What, what would be the right term? I was about to say audio visually, but there's no visual. Orally with an A, right? Yes. Um, Once had a vicious dispute over the correct pronunciation of that word with someone from West Michigan, who will remain nameless. But he knows who he is. Yes, he does. Okay, so um, other uh, action items. I saw just before we started this that the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco released the podcast audio of my hour-long interview with them when I was out there. If people are still interested in that kind of stuff for my book, uh, it was kind of fun. It was kind of interesting. It's always interesting to see who want like who's angered by what aspects of my book and basically every NPR audience I talked to their biggest problem was my problem with identity politics which I thought was kind of interesting um, but it was a fun night and it was not a speech uh, it was just a series of questions so uh, or an interview or a conversation or whatever so I thought that was fun we're told that the my appearance on the Sunday special Ben Shapiro thing will be out this Sunday, right? Isn't that what we were told? I think so, yes. It sounds right. What is time, though? Exactly. 
Oh, the yeah, the conversation between me and John Podoritz's sweater on C-SPAN came out <laughs> last weekend. Uh, you can um, find it at cspan.org and also on your website and also on my on jonahgoldberg.com. And for those who are asking why I haven't really responded to many of the reviews, positive and negative, yet of my book, uh, I want to reassure you that I will be. Maybe not all of them because some of them are just too stupid, or. You know, I'm not going to, and I'm not going to say, oh, the person who says my book was fantastic is 100% right. That's not really an interesting thing. So it's sort of finding the people who had interesting criticisms or um, disagreements that were offered in good faith. But I plan on um, wading into all that stuff kind of soon. I was telling Jack before this thing started that uh, the rush to finish the book and then the hell of the book tour and then the Hell of all of this travel stuff, including the stuff with my going out to Alaska for my father-in-law. I kind of feel like the Blues Brothers car at the end of the movie where they finally park it at the Cook County um, assessor's office and it just falls apart completely. Um, this is also kind of how James K. Polk's life was because he he was a one-term president who did everything that he said that he was going to do before he became, became president then once he left office, he died almost immediately. <laughs> yeah. I'm not loving the analogy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. He's not. We, 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 we can have mixed feelings about his presidential legacy. But but I went to the doctor yesterday, and I had to actually bring a list of, <laughs> the thing, of my ailments and problems that I needed to talk about. And uh, so I've just sort of been run down um, and trying to sort of uh, get back into fighting form. Oh, remember last week I talked about how everyone should subscribe to the, all these magazines? Mm-hmm. Um, I still think everyone should do that. I got the right, someone corrected me, you know, Pod does do a pitch for Commentary Magazine at the beginning of every show, which may be one reason why I forgot it because you kind of tune it out because you hear it the same way every single time. Although it drives me crazy that 90% of the time John always says that it's, says that it's, that Commentary is a 70 something year old journal you would think at some point he could just like look up the number and say whatever the number is um, perhaps a commentary is bashful about its age these days maybe maybe that's it but i was thinking if if people haven't already created a tsunami of subscriptions to all of these magazines i highly encourage you somewhere in the subscription thing or here's what you can do if your name is say john smith put your name down as john dingo smith <laughs> so we have like a die marker of the incredible power of the podcast Oh, and um, uh, in a uh, in the most ambitious crossover since uh, Infinity Wars, I'm going to be on Charlie Sykes's Weekly Standard podcast this week. Oh, wow! And I'm also going to do something with Derek Hunter at the Daily Caller. So watch out for that. Anything else that we need to discuss? Um, I can't think of anything. Uh, oh, there are people who don't like my sign-off phrase. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I like it as a, as a placeholder. I think it's been kind of good. Um, I'm, 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 I'm not sure it's as funny as it once was, though. And in the, in the moment it was created, it was amusing. But now, is it really worthy of the last words that people hear every time they listen? Yeah, to probably episode? not. I don't know. But it's also, it's there's also great potential for it to be sort of like, you know, like in where you do something so much, like I don't know, like you play the same song in a jukebox, at like a diner or a bar, mm-hmm. and it's really annoying the second time or the third time, or the fourth time. But when you get to, like, the 35th time, it starts becoming hilarious again. Yeah, this is, uh, who is that that drug lord that we played the, the music to to get him, drive him out of his house? Emmanuel Noriega. Emmanuel Noriega. Yeah, yeah, that's, like, probably what he had. He started enjoying all that music after a while. So he, he came out and he just wanted to buy the records. I think that's what, that, what happened. 
I don't think that's what happened. Really? Are you sure? <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not what happened. Okay. Um, that's what I was taught, but uh, um, say so. All right. Well, we'll, 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 we'll revisit your late Cold War uh, <laughs> professor at Hillsdale College. Anyway, uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And um, I, maybe we'll be back again later this week. I haven't figured that part out yet. Thanks to everybody sincerely for all the kind words and condolences about my father-in-law. I may figure out a way to get more um, uh, stories about him in into the podcast because there's some great stories about the guy. And uh, I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>